Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, a new podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Each week, we will bring you a new interview with one of Hollywood's top directors discussing their latest film released this season. What makes this series unique is every director is interviewed by a fellow DGA member, someone who shares his or her lifelong passion for filmmaking and already understands what a director goes through every step of the way to making a film. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alejandro Iñárritu's latest feature film, The Revenant. Inspired by true events, Iñárritu's film tells the story of legendary explorer Hugh Glass, who was left for dead by members of his own hunting party after being savagely mauled by a bear. Vowing to survive the betrayal of his confidant, John Fitzgerald, Glass must endure a vicious winter and uncharted wilderness through sheer will, becoming the living definition of the term revenant, a visible ghost or animated corpse believed to return from the grave to terrorize the living. Mr. Inyaritu was awarded the 2015 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film, as well as the Academy Award for Best Director for his most recent film, Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Moderating the discussion following the New York screening of the film was director Darren Aronofsky. Known for his feature films Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream, Mr. Aronofsky has been a member of the DGA since 2000. We invite you to listen in on highlights from Mr. Inyaritu and Mr. Aronofsky's conversation recorded in November at the DGA Theater in New York. Enjoy. Thank you. Feels like a moment in film history, no? <laughs> well, I was—I uh, saw it a couple of days ago, and I haven't stopped thinking about it. And there's so much to talk about. I didn't even know really how to begin talking about it because uh, it's just—it's uh, so rich in every department and every contribution, and as a film and where it stands in getting a film like this made in today's climate and in this world, it, there's just so much to talk about. So I'll try to talk about a few things. But um, let's start a little bit at the beginning. Uh, my memory is that this was all going on and starting while you were still promoting Birdman. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, good evening, everybody, and thank you for being tonight. And Darren, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, Basically, yes. Uh, I think since that time, I have just finished mixing the film literally on Friday, so I'm a little still shocked that <laughs> I'm here now representing the film. But yes, it was uh, actually the film start um, as a project five years ago. I did the first location scouting in 2010. Then, uh, by some recent uh, schedule problems with Leo, Leo jumping to uh, 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 Wolf of Wall Street. Street that he has been pursuing for years. There was a conflict schedule. The, 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 the project was put on hold. I start, you know, writing Birdman and directing it. Thankfully that that happened in the middle. And then as I was mixing Birdman, this project came alive again and I start again uh, in a way, uh, scouting and mixing Birdman, and from there I haven't stopped until now. Oh my gosh, what a long trip. And 
what made it come alive? Was it Leo's availability happened? Well, it, it was something that I have to say that um, it was something that we both were very excited. At the time, then, this came along and... And Arnold Milchen from New Regency and Brad Weston, I think they were very excited about the project. And once suddenly everything kind of aligned again, they really pursue it and, and they really make it happen in that sense. And I said, okay. And I was a little bit hesitant about my physical possibilities to, to do it in that I always I have to take three years between one film and another one. And this was what, like, ready? Another marathon? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I used to I used <laughs> put the towel and, okay, let's run again. Yeah, yeah. But, it, yeah, it was, I will say, thanks for, for them that really, they, they really make it happen in yeah, that sense. They right? push it forward. Yeah. I always wonder about that because, you know, as, as the director, we get, uh, we have to do it every two, three years. But I, I feel so bad when my DP goes off and, ha like, a week off and is on to another movie. And I'm, uh, how do you do it? ADs as well. It's just one after the other. It's it's an incredible thing. So to do that back to back, is it? Uh, what where do you find the resources and the energy? Was it just able to get that the material that drove you, or where do you find that energy? You know, I think it has to do with um, <clears throat> for me, Birdman was a very uh, reinvigorating film. That it was the first film that I did as a comedy and. All, everything felt right. It was a challenging film in many levels, but it was a 29-day shooting in this beautiful city. I have a great apartment. In the, you know, it was everything was so controlled and so perfect in that sense. And spiritually, in a way, I found my way to find myself in a very good spot uh, internally. You know, first spiritually, it was like a good vibe moment that I found through a lot of process that I have been to get there and. I found that I was kind of ready to go. I said, why not? I always <clears throat> concern that always when I finish a film, as all of us, it took a lot from us, right? So I mean, you give part of yourself and it kills you a little bit. I always say that a film kills you little by little. It eats you a couple of years of your life, maybe 10 or maybe whatever, but you are older <laughs> for sure. And your liver, is, is, it will charge you one day or the other. But I, I, I think that... Uh, you know, I was kind of ready to, to jump. And I'm always very worried that every time that I finish a film, I go into kind of a depression kind of thing, like a postpartum. And it takes me time to really recover emotionally. And then I go into this kind of state of mind that I'm kind of lost. And so suddenly to avoid that, yeah. I said, ah, let's jump to the next one. Let's get pregnant. Let's have twins. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Now I don't know what will happen after this next week. But <laughs> I have a, I mean, I guess, I guess I want to start with um, the cinematography. Mm -hmm. um, there's just so much to deal with as a viewer um, and as fellow filmmakers, we're constantly realizing what you're pulling off. Let's talk about some of those shots, you know, I could imagine like the bear attack was like deeply conceived beforehand, right? The bear attack was insane. Um, uh, but I know how I, I have a sense of how you did the bear attack, but like climbing that mountain, you know, when they abandon the ship and lug the stuff up the hill, are you sort of improvising on it, it because you're working in real locations with real light? 
and you're doing these long takes, how do you, uh, you know, how do you conceive of these shots before you know where the location exists? Do you find the location and then start dreaming up what equipment you're going to need and then get there? And then, of course, that equipment's actually not doing what you think it's doing. So, like, let's just talk about how, as a filmmaker, you put together some of those masterful shots. Well, I, I think that, you know, um, many of them were conceived as a notion, like, for example, the first attack, that battle, it was something that I storyboarded five years ago, and I knew that I wanted to tell the story from the different points of view with no cuts and shifting things just to make people, you know, basically embrace that reality and feel it in a kind of a 3D emotional, you know, experience. And I want that. So some of those kind of shots were this pre-designing concept, and then locations were found or tried to find locations that in a way will will fit to the needs that we knew that it will be. And that was a, a lot of those, I will say, <clears throat> um, action scenes that will require certain landscape characteristics. So then we were looking for those characteristics. There's another ones, like the one that you are talking when that I call the map and pels, where they are burying the pels and we go from the river and to a big, big crane onto the top of the mountain and all that. That was on a crane. Yes. On a techno. Yeah, it's a super big one. And 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 honestly, uh, to put that thing was a nightmare. But anyway, I can imagine. anyway, what I'm saying it's like is like the, the shot before that is the grips carrying <laughs> that thing up the hill on their heads. <laughs> yeah, we, we were the trappers before and then they were shooting another trappers. But the thing is that the the uh, some of those locations when we were uh, doing locations we found things that the appetite and the ambition you know that could have been done in a plain and pedestrian you know landscape and just those guys very thing and a little conversation here and that's it but suddenly when you are exposed to those like you arrive to a buffet and you see this shrimp and that you want that you you know you don't want that little egg you want that. So suddenly we were in these landscapes. And, wow, can, can you imagine this? Yes, it will be great. And then you said it will be great. The boat is here. The mule here. They come the mule. So you dream. And then the logistics, you begin to regret what you dream. But it was during the locations that suddenly Chivo and I were very exciting to find those locations and dreaming, dreaming about it and then trying to make it happen. So it's a combination of notion and look for that or that inspire you and then you have to solve it, you know. So I heard uh, at yesterday's screening, it came out that that avalanche was a real avalanche that you guys created. Yeah, it was a. I, mean, I that, thought that, I was no, like, wow, that, that, that was another thing of the the thing. You know, I was we were scouting three years ago, Chiwa and I in this uh, fortress mountain that is uh, eight eight thousand feet tall, and we were ten or fifteen degrees below zero, and just you know, when I was scouting. Uh, uh, there was some sounds that were amazing, like wow, all these ice just cracking. And I said, so suddenly I thought, well, this is a moment where this guy will find Captain Henry dead, and it's the moment that he can be killed in any moment. He he is completely now shocked by himself. Now is nature again, man against nature, man against man. So that's a moment that is like, why, you know. The, and I thought it would be great that an avalanche can come as a representation of his his inner emotion, like you know, like nature projecting that interior state, which always I try to use nature as that, as an emotional state or a character that represents that. 
And I asked the guys, and they said, well, we can make it happen. I said, how? Well, we, 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 we can send a little plane, put, uh, explode uh, you know, some dynamite, and it will take us three, four minutes. And I said, well, what is the possibilities that all this mountain came to us? Well, sometimes, but I doubt it. Really? <laughs> okay. So I said, well, that's cool. Anyway, when we, that was six months before in advance. So we planned the shot to be this kind of thing. He arrived, we go. Uh, so that day was the mo that one, one of those uh, shots that looks a little bit simple, but to put horses on the top of that mountain and then to have a horse, you know, horses in the right thing that lands in the right thing, that doesn't move. Eh? And then it was like, okay, plane. Okay, Leo, now. Okay, go. So everything was one shot and coordinate the horse and an avalanche in time. And you have just one shot. Every day was like that. So it was a lot of logistics, a lot of plan, and then cross fingers that it will happen. Uh, how many want. times did it, how many times did it get fucked up? Not that sequence, but a sequence that you planned for that and you're like, oh, can't do it. You can't reset the mountain. Uh honestly, it was well, I will tell you one, for example, the one of the tree falling with the Indians in the after the attack yeah, 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 yeah. with the old man yeah. and we were that tree was a disaster because that tree didn't want to fall exactly what I want. So <laughs> first it falls in the in a little cabin, then it didn't fall and it almost burned the, the forest. You know, it was one of those that said, oh my God, let's do it. They're like, no, no, no. And so I wanted to make it real. And it's a real one, but it took us like three times and it was a nightmare. Wow. It was a nightmare. Yeah. To, 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 uh, tree falling can be a very big problem. Uh, is, one technical question I wanted to ask was, you know, it's shot digitally, correct? Yes. And, uh, but there was, it felt like you were doing, using a lot of kind of um, um, photographic artifacts of, you know, letting the water hit the lens, the blood hit the lens. Um, and then there was something interesting that I was curious what your take was, was as it was like a wide angle lens with some distortion on the ends. It, was that a normal wide angle lens? And were you going for this? sort of bringing in these artifacts of photography to what was the sort of the some theory of those, behind some that? Some of those were happy accidents that then we took advantage of them. Like like we shot most of the film in 14 millimeter lens. So 14. 14. So the There was more distortion than a And then lens. we use sometimes 12, sometimes 10, but mostly 12, 14 were kind of the basic, and then sometimes 17, and I think we once used the 21, but it was a very rare occasion. So, but in terms of the sometimes, by some reason, it can be distorted, sometimes, most time not. I think it happened a couple of times that we were kind of surprised about it. But for example, the breathing, it was so cold that the breath was yeah. naturally there. And sometimes when we were in a, you know, I wanted always the plan was to go from extreme epic landscapes and suddenly go to the macro, you know, close-up to understand that that's his point of view and then what he's seeing, what he's feeling. So when that was happening, for example, when Leo finds his boy dead and we were going in, it happened naturally that he was really breathing heavily because it was a very emotional thing and it hit. And I said, and we were going in and, and that happened and the land was completely bathed. And then in the editing room, I found the possibility to cut to the to the uh, clouds as a metaphor of where he's going again. But happy accidents happen, yeah. you know, uh, like the sometimes uh, things hitting the land. I was happy because in a way, 
it was a way it was a way to to be very close to the character very intimate no no tricks uh-huh. <laughs> i like the physicality of that you know and beyond the one takes of the uh the avalanche um one of these sh- shoot days imagine you're prepping you know you have a sweet spot of how many hours in light and then how many takes would you get for your your general setups you know a day a normal day went like this almost i would say every day was like that we were shooting in very far remote locations like two hours from calgary or from vancouver so it took us a lot of time to of travel then all the wardrobe and makeup in lee was heavy so it took a long time so we will never be ready before no matter how early we wake up 12 let's say so basically it was or rehearse before they went to the makeup and blah blah just to rehearse again because every scene was rehearsed months in advance like the battle scene we rehearsed three weeks like every scene was pre-rehearsed even in the storage that we have in calgary with tapes just like the fort before it was built we knew how we're gonna shoot how the size of the rooms the size of the blah blah and then jack fist built based upon our blocking and choreography so the film was like like planned as a digital film but in a physical world so we arrive we rehearse 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 waiting for the light to be the right light and the people ask me why you shot in natural light and there's many reasons but the logical reasons is is that when you are shooting a film like this if i will have shot in two three cameras in a in an academic shooting it will have been impossible to match the light because the, the, the weather changed so much. In Calgary, just for you to understand, is the place in planet Earth that scientifically the weather changed more than any place in the world. Seven changes can happen varying like from 20, 25 degrees. So it was a very stupid decision for us to be shooting there. But we, we just find the best locations there. But So you have sun, no sun, rain, blah, blah. So it will never match in the editing. So... It was a wise decision to shoot most of it in one take. Not really the reason, but I buy it for now. No, no, but it's, it, it, this is, I'm, I'm telling you, it's a layer. So that's one reason. The other reason is that at, in winter, we shot mostly in winter at 3 o'clock, it's dark. And at 2.30 or 2 o'clock, be, uh, under the trees, you have 2.8. So, I mean, the, the light is like nothing. So we have to shoot very fast. Again, the coverage will have in a nightmare. It will be maybe more time than, than just one shot. Sometimes I shot it three pages or four pages in one, in one day with that kind of method. And lastly, with these 14 millimeters lenses, with these kind of movements that were almost 360, how, how you light that? So you cannot hide lights. And to light for what? You cannot light that exterior you have brother son there with the most beautiful amazing light and the complexity so chivo and i always talk about caravaggio what i want this film to be more like a sonic painting to represent the way we kind of perceive that world that we will never see because there was no camera there was no film so it was more to maintain that kind of heaven beauty of landscape that reveal at that time in the in the hour even the locations at the right hour the plants talk to you. The the shine of the the the, the snow. The everything just become a revelation itself. Without doing a lot, you just put the camera in the right time, and everything just speak differently. And that has a huge impact emotionally. And yeah. so all those reasons were why we we did it that way. You know, amazing. By the way, the, the I mean the 
um, I haven't shot digital yet, but you know, the sensitivity of the camera during the, during the firelight scene, you've never, you don't just don't see images like that where you get pupils on the actors so wide and you just getting so, such detail that, it's just gotten it's i reject digital all my life and uh, when i shot birdman i couldn't have shot birdman with film cameras because there was only practical light in corridors this size so we will never been able to put artificial light and it will look like shit. so it was artif it was practical light and thanks to the re digital was that and in this one we tried she when i wanted to shoot in 65 70 we did test and we were looking at a two o'clock there was no more light available in that time, right. and then there's only one lab in this country now that is Photochem, and suddenly the tests of the developing arrive, and they were looking not good, and and the and sometimes they were X-ray in the airport. They didn't allow us to not pass it in the X-ray, so they were affected, and then obviously we'll have done to have to shoot with you know 1,000 feet magazine rolls that will not allow us to go to wherever. So honestly, suddenly I. I have to surrender to technology and use the tools when they are proper for certain films. This film couldn't have been made without digital cameras. Because, I mean, it, it, it would have been impossible, I would say. So that's a good tool to use when you need it. Why to re reject it categorically, I think. You know, I think it's what it is. And, and I think it looks great. And we use a 65-millimeter RE camera that in that time was not tested. And there was no insurance. That was a, that was a 65. 40% of the film is 65, and it looks just gorgeous. Like, the, for example, that do avalanche. You, do is you that. shoot close-ups with that? Yes. Do you shoot any yes. of the people with that? It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. And the studio back us because the insurance didn't pay because it was an untested camera. It could have worked or not, and she would beg a knife back for it. And they said, go. And thankfully, we did it. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So talk, did you shoot any... Any drones, or is that no? Nope. No, no. It was uh, the 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 shot in the lake is an right. helicopter. All right. it's, a, it's a real helicopter. That's it. Mount Hazen, That's it. Um, and Leo was, you know, the helicopter passed very close to Leo. I was like, ah, my <laughs> God. it was it was really scary. It was really scary. Uh, awesome. Uh, do we have any questions? Please. No, honestly, honestly, this film is. Honestly, a, a, a product of a very uh, irresponsible decision that I did <laughs> of making it. Honestly, because you know, I romantically say I want to submerge myself in nature, and I want to capture the silences and and the horses in the snow and a human being embraced by silence. You know, all my romantic, idealistic things. The problem is you have to be, was what my father said, be careful with what you wish. Because honestly, yes, I was there and there was moments that I said, how I saw, how I do that. So, I mean, it was much more difficult than I never imagined. Everything was a problem. Even, I have to say, in the stupid things, when we were, it's a lot, it's a sometimes a huge crew and you have shot in the snow, just the traces of the feet there. You know what I mean? Like suddenly a guy, don't go there. So now the, the, the snow is already, you screw and you said, oh my God. So just to be, is taking out the steps of the crew from every shot, from ev just everything, everything in the snow become a three times more problematic thing. And anyway, no, I didn't knew. Uh, I'm glad that I did it. It was incredibly exciting, and I feel super proud. But maybe rationalizing, if I will have been smart enough to think ahead and know that, probably I will say no. Clint Eastwood <laughs> last year when we were said said I w he, he was 
I was scouting and Clint Eastwood told me that he was once offered a, a Western in the snow. And he said that after 10 days of scouting, he rejected. And he said, God bless you, pal. And I said, thank you very much. He's wise. I'm not. Yeah. Mm. I, I think naive, naivete is like the, our best weapon at times. Please. Well-trained bear from the Union of Bears in Canada. They have several of them. This was the best. No, it's, it's, it's you know, honestly, it took months of of uh, it was it was funny i did a lot of research because i was scared to, to to portray a bear as the classic hollywood bear of you know and 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 always something that bothered me is that uh, sometimes animals are portrayed as if they will have human emotions for the humans to understand now he's he's mad or he's sad so always the the horses do like this so you know there is that kind of kind of things that we have that offer the audience to understand that this animal is saying that. And I, and, and I saw a lot of videos of disgusting, horrible videos of, you know, attacks of bears. And I spoke too with, obviously, with Mr. Herzog, that what he heard in that uh, headphones in, in his beautiful documentary. But he told me I was super scared. And then I interviewed a crazy guy in Montana that wrote the book. And he interviewed, has been interviewing for 10 years. And there's a book out of people that has been attacked or has survived or has witnessed a bear attack. So he has documented that because, you know, you will never see that, hopefully not. Uh, but, but it's very hard to imagine how that happened. And uh, so he told me every detail about it, like, like really why happened, why they attack, how it, uh, so that research helped me a lot. Then the videos and then obviously the choreography to narratively has something to, to that is not like just bad, but then abandon all that kind of tension that I want to create. Took uh, rehearsals to block with obviously stunts and, and, and guys from special effects. We figure out cable things. Leo did an amazing job, really very brave physically. He was shaked to death. But I would like to avoid to talk exactly how we do it because I will ruin for you the experience. You know what I mean? I want you to say, I saw that and it happened. If not, I will ruin the experience for the audiences. I, I think that's what we do. We do probable the improbable. I think we achieve it. I'm very happy and proud of it. But I think it's better to not reveal the, the trick or the illusion to, to not ruin it for you, you know? But you know, you, I'm sure that you get how we did it, but I will not want to go to the specifics, but it took a lot of time. Um, Fair enough. Anything else? Yes, please. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, Hugh Glass is a, is a character that is built on legend, honestly. It's a guy that the only historical fact that is known is that he was attacked by a grizzly bear, he was abandoned, and then he has to survive all, almost 200 miles in a deep winter to find revenge. And that's the only thing, every other thing that is known about him is an invention of, you know, uh, mythology and and you know these 200 years that has passed almost and so uh first uh there my friend steve golding uh, gave me uh, a first uh draft that it was written by mark l smith in where he loosely based the first draft in, um, in the novel by michael monk which has the same name and the only thing that really are similar is the name and the fact of this anecdote um 
And then I, I asked to, to, to rewrite it because I want to include some things that for me were very important, but the premise and the, the story is very simple. I like it, the simplicity of something so primal, so basic, so nobody can get lost in, in what really happened. Again, a man going against a man for the right reason in the, in the novel and the stories because they abandoned and they took him the rifle. For me, that was not enough. Because, I mean, for me, it's not about the guns. And, and, and honestly, then I started studying the period. 1823, and honestly, that period of time hasn't been explored in a long time. I mean, like the complexity of this time in the United States is, I found it fascinating. Uh, it's a time that basically, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte has just sold Louisiana and half of the country to the United States. Mexico, my country, has just got the independence from Spain two years before. It was full of Spanish, full of Mexicans, uh, French people, uh, English people, French Canadian, English Canadian, uh, 100 and something Native American uh, uh, tribes, and no law, nobody has crossed. It was like the Amazons, only Lewis and Clark 20 years before has crossed. So it was an unknown territory where basically the biggest income in the United States in that time, before the oil, before the gold, before the West exists, it was the animal pelts. That was the income because the women in Europe, in France and London, they were with these beaver hats and they was costing a fortune. So basically all these corporations, these forts, boom, planted there and start you know, doing a, almost a genocide of the animals. They almost disappeared and they began to broke every promise, every every relation with the, the tribes and extracting, you know, cutting uh, the trees. I mean, it's like the start of the capitalism, the regulate capitalism as we know it there. The way they they pay the trappers, which were normally very analphabet, young guys, runaways, and they were abused and they were paid very badly. And the way they relate with the woman, with the American, with the Native American woman, some of them embrace them, some of them reject them, some of them hide it. And the, the, the consequences of embrace an Ameri a Native American family was huge. Anyway, all those elements, I felt this is fascinating. This is a very complicated thing that the East intellectuals, in a way, you know, romanticize, like these frontier men that are in the But it was book. It, it was it was a very tough thing. And again, is very resonant with the reality that we live now, that we don't see the communities, we don't know about the impact, it's just about profit, profit, profit. And, and I found that as a context really great, and then I found the possibility of having a son that is, uh, uh, you know, mixed race, the complication of a man taking care of that, of a family that he lost, and for me it's about a journey, yes, it's an adventure film that has to be a ride and a spectacular, but for me the intimate, possibility to know what a man in that time that is a little bit progressive has gone through and 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 the question about if revenge is a hollow kind of emotion and what is after because always in revenge films always there's a glimpse that and they live happy after and I don't think so because even when you accomplish it doesn't return so all those things were the ones that I wanted and portray try to do my best to portray the Native Americans in the most fair way, because always in my country there's 10% of indigenous people, and always films tend to sanctify them or demonize them. And I want them, this guy, to be just a guy looking for the daughter. <laughs> that you understand the humanity, be, be, you know, beyond the ideology or color of his skin, is just two parents literally looking for what all of human beings will do. And 
So all those things, in a way, for me, were things that I that I found it interesting to put and invent my own glass, the glass that I would love to. Maybe he's been. Maybe he was not that, but I will have loved. And maybe that guy exists for sure. One of those, those has to be like that. Applause for that. Thank you. Uh, since we're at the DGA, you want to talk about your DGA team? My what? Your DGA team. Well, I, I think I have an amazing, you know, Scott Robertson. Is, is it was it was uh, a warrior <laughs> uh, that really endured, you know. And Adam Sumner went into uh, uh, the second unit, a unit that we went to Ushuaia because uh, before we uh, um, uh, finished the film, there's no rundown in Calgary, so we have to start in scouting in New Zealand and everywhere. And we found a territory very similar geographically to what we were shooting, but we found it in the last town of America, in Tierra de Fuego, in Argentina, in Ushuaia. And uh, and Scott has to do some family things, but he was the most warrior thing. And we count with an amazing team of seconds and third that it was extremely difficult because the quantity and the conditions. And without that, without the, log the lo logistically, this film had to deal with so much that I don't know how, how they did it, honestly. So, I mean, it was the, the brain and, and the heart behind these two guys. Well, it's an honor. It's a tremendous accomplishment, and uh, welcome it to the world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Valerie. We hope you enjoyed listening to this talk. You can watch a video of this entire Q&A on our website at dga.org events. On our website, you can watch all of our recent filmmaker Q&As, as well as highlights from Mr. Inyari 2's conversation with director Michael Mann following the Los Angeles screening of The Revenant. The Q&A is also available on YouTube. If you are enjoying the director's cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. We hope you hear from us then. This podcast is brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Music is produced by Dan Wally.